1: is not a diving podcast, but scuba. Cool. Welcome to the show. I'm scuba. This is the not a diving podcast. Right. This is the first show in three weeks. Had a couple of weeks off in an unplanned fit of, well, what can I say? I don't really have an excuse to be honest, but uh, suffice to say there were schedules which were not kept to. I've been deep in the bowels of a uh, run of dates to support the 20th anniversary of a label hot flush 20 dates have been all over the place had some really fun nights but unfortunately lots of the other stuff <laughs> that i suppose we've been doing in that period hasn't happened and um not, not all of that is my fault i have to say and i hold my hands up and say some of it is my fault but definitely not all of it anyway if you're a patron you'll have had stuff in the meantime And if you want to support the show, if you like what we're doing here, then you can do patreon.com slash official. Yeah, there will have been stuff that you would have got whilst regular episodes have not been airing. But we are back today with a full episode, which I'm happy to say finally back. And okay, just before we get started with this episode, I'm going to say that I'm at IMS International Music Summit in Ibiza this week doing three live podcasts. So if you're at the conference, definitely come and say hello. It's going to be fun. I'm going to be interviewing. In fact, no, I'm not even going to say who I'm going to be interviewing because uh, the podcasts are going to be up on the main feed. and I don't want to give it away too soon. I mean, if you really want to find out, then you can probably find out. But I'm not going to give it away right now. Anyway, so, so like I said, if you're in a booth this week, then definitely come and say hello. And, um, yeah, it be nice to see you around. Right, this week on the show, Tamsin Embleton has edited a really exciting and important book called Touring and Mental Health. Tamsin is a psychotherapist, but she's a former music industry professional. She used to be a booker and did various other things, which she describes in this week's conversation. And we get into all kinds of interesting areas detailed in the book. The book is a pretty weighty tome. It's 600 odd pages. And luckily, I was able to have a, a bit of an extended period to get through it. I was um, given an advanced PDF of it at the end of last year. So I've been making my way through it and um, yeah, I was able to dig into some of the areas which I really found interesting in it actually. It's quite technical, it's a lot of uh, different chapters written by academics and as well as people directly involved in the music industry. So yeah, it's a really interesting piece of work and actually going to be pretty widely available on the circuit because Life Nation paid for it or contributed quite a lot towards getting it published and made a block order meaning that if you're at a Live Nation venue backstage then there'll be a copy of the book around which is kind of cool so yes I think we should just dive in shall we I've already mentioned Patreon join us on the discord if you're not there already slash discord if you've got anything to say about the show and follow the Spotify playlist Okay, that's about it, right? Yeah, let's just get into this, shall we? Without further delay, here is Tamsin Embleton. Tamsin Embleton, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
2: Thank you. Yeah, I'm all right then. It's not a bad long week, but all good.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I guess you've been doing a fair bit of press for this incredible book that you've put together.
2: I have, yeah, and it's all new doing press and stuff. So so it's been quite a lot to adjust to. But it's exciting. It's always a lot, um, you know, it's sort of anxiety-provoking in the short term, that kind of apprehension, but then you get into it and it's just having a conversation with someone. So, you know, it's all good.
1: Exactly. So I have... Listen, I've been following this a little bit. And I've listened to a couple of things that you've done. So I'm going to try not to overlap too much, but there's going to be an inevitable uh, degree of that. So just to get started for our audience on this show, could you just introduce yourself and tell you, tell us a bit about who you are and your uh, kind of potted history of your experiences in this stuff?
2: Okay, so, uh, my name's Tamsin Ambleton and I'm a psychotherapist. I specialize in working with, um, artists, performers, musicians, music industry professionals. Um and I run a group called Music Industry Therapist Collective. We are all ex-industry, so we have Matt Cantor from Freestylers and Ryan Dusick who was in room five and people who worked in all different parts of the industry in recording, in studios, as PRs, and we're across the States and the UK and branching into Europe and we uh, offer individual therapy, group therapy and workshops to people like Atlantic and Cobalt and stuff like that. But before that, um, I was a booker. So I used to run, um, club nights, um, mainly kind of indie club nights really. And, um, I used to book a little festival and then I was an in-house booker, um, for me and Fiddler at various venues, um, and did a bit of management, bit of tour management. And yeah, and it was kind of through that that I started to think a bit about the impact of touring. So I went on tour essentially with um, a tour managing a wonderful woman, um, Anna Calvi, and she was supporting a side project of Nick Cave for the Bad Seeds, Grinder Man, who um, were touring Europe. So we went out on the road with them, and I realised that I'd been sending a lot of people out on the road. Uh, and I'd been kind of joining tours, but in a kind of short way, in a brief way, a couple of shows maybe in the UK, or I'd go out to Europe and do a TV show here and there, and that sort of stuff. But I wasn't really understanding the toll it takes and just the kind of complexity of it and, and how it can hit you in these different areas. So I look at it in a kind of Now I'm a therapist, that's how I look at it anyway, as a kind of, uh, you know, there's lots of psychological stresses and demands, there's lots of physical stresses, um, you know, which is partly due to the lifestyle, but also to do with the stress and the roller coaster you're in. And there's lots of social stresses as well, both kind of on the road and how it impacts your relationships at home. So from there, started to, well, had this kind of weird, surreal conversation um, after a show and found myself talking about therapy and I'd been in therapy for quite a while at that point. So I'd kind of, my background, um, I'd found music as, you know, as a kind of cathartic resource as everybody does and was involved in the club scene in Liverpool where I grew up and the punk scene there as well. And, um, long story short, had some problems that eventually kind of became, stuff I couldn't really ignore and went to therapy, tried a few things, wasn't really working, then finally found um, a form of therapy that wasn't behavioural based that really hit the spot for me and started to have these kind of profound changes. And I was talking about therapy in this Chinese restaurant um, after a show with We had both of the bands there, and Nick Cave was talking. We had some like mad conversations about um, like Iggy Pop and all, you know all of these kind of antics that were going on in the old days. But lots of them are sober now in the Bad Seeds and. We were both talking about therapy and what we got from it. And um, basically, long story short, a few, few years later, I was leaving the industry, um, had been working at a recording studio, and I remembered that conversation. I thought, you know what? Someone out there is Nick Cave's therapist, and that sounds like a really cool job, and probably something I'm suited to, because when you've kind of experienced trauma, you tend to gravitate towards people and understand them on a... You know, can, you can bear being near distress.
1: Sorry, let me let me just ask you a question there. Um, so So you'd already decided to leave the music industry before you decided what you wanted to do is that, is that right?
2: Mm, sort of, I mean I was um, I was the events booker at Metropolis Studios over in Chiswick and, uh, and it's really, it's kind of a bit of an impossible job really because you, you put some stuff in and then say someone like Rihanna or you know big artist comes in, block books the studio for a month and then you know everything has to go to one side and it was just, it just wasn't really working out. Also, I'm, you know, I was doing this massive Coca-Cola event for the Olympics, 2012 Olympics. That was kind of soul destroying. And I just thought, I'm just not sure I'm cut out of this. And so, um, yeah, so I worked with a coach, basically, uh, another ex-industry coach called Tim Hole, who's great. And, um, and we figured out that I wanted to work with people and I started working at homeless shelter, at winter night shelter, amazing, do great stuff. And, um, and yeah, and, uh. And my therapist and him said, you know, just why don't you train? And I thought, okay, well, I'll give it a go. And then trained, which is enormously stressful, but um, very interesting. And decided to kind of focus in on psychological impact of touring. So that's where I started. That was uh, like late 2016, started looking at, you know, what's really happening on the road and what are people going through and, and making sense of everything I'd seen sort of backstage, like the withdrawal and the irritability and the anxiety and the sort of different behaviors. And I had a language for it then. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of the basis, really.
1: Okay. With training, this is, I mean, something that interests me. Both my parents are Freudian psychoanalysts, and my, my childhood was largely defined by them doing their various forms of training. So, I'm, I'm interested to know uh, exactly what your. Uh, training pathway was there what what did you have to do
2: so uh my route was i went and did like a sort of general um psychotherapy and counseling ma and then through that i was working um you, you have to do a placement for a few years you have to kind of get your hours up and i was in a hospital in east london and I really enjoyed being there. It was fascinating. I was kind of thrown in the deep end. I was working with people with very kind of complex difficulties um, but it felt like a good fit and my my supervisor there was attachment based psychoanalytic and um, essentially through kind of um, seeing the impact of that theory in action, I suppose, and helping people understand the quality and availability of their first relationships and how that can that kind of forms the basis of um, how you respond in times of stress, you know, whether uh, people respond to you helpfully in times of crisis or not. And it has a really sort of wide ranging um, impact on concentration and memory and stress tolerance and stuff like that. And so then I went to the Bowlby Centre um, to do a training there and did train like lots of trauma trainings on top. So that's kind of w- what I look at in particular is trauma that's occurred in childhood, essentially, and how that manifests later in addiction issues, eating disorder issues, um, stuff that has clinical labels like um, personality disorders, schizoaffective disorders, stuff like that. So was it
1: always was it always obvious to you that you wanted to work what well, work with musicians and work in this kind of a area, having come out of it. Um,
2: No, not, not, yes and no. It was kind of like, it was an idea in the back of my mind. But to be honest, when I left the industry, like a lot of people, I felt a lot of shame. I felt like I'd failed. I was like, oh my God, I just, you know... I've uh, had a lot of sort of challenging times, let's say, in the industry. Like, I was dropped by a band I work with just on the pinnacle of them sort of signing this big deal. And, you know, I, I worked at a festival where my boss was sent to prison, and like lots of just quite intense things happen. And, And I just thought, you know what, maybe this isn't for me. And, you know, the questions you get often asked in music are like, you know, who are you working with at the moment? And those times where you're not working with someone, like you you pin so much of your identity onto your work, essentially. So when that started to fall apart, um, I wasn't quite sure how to, I wasn't quite sure where it was going. That being said, um, I trained as a nanny and I lo- ended up looking after some musician's kids. So Kieran Hebden's daughter, I looked after her and through him, I looked after his um, agent and friends, um, children, Tom Baker, who runs At Your Own Ears. So they're really close friends. Now, um, so I looked after their children while I was training and so I kept kind of, I was like on the periphery of the industry and I, and I was booking, like I booked a little venue in Camden and I booked a venue in Bath at the same time. And, but it felt, it felt like I might be leaving, but I, I couldn't quite do it in a way. I was like, no, there's still something, there's something here. I just quite, I haven't quite found my place. Um, but then when I was training, lots of friends who were tour managers started referring people to me and saying, like, are you are you qualified to work yet? And I was like, well, g- you know, give me another six months. Or then I started taking people on that way. And I was like, well, I, clearly there's a lot of need here. And I knew that working in the industry, it's one of the things actually that I quite liked about it in a way was that lots of people are unconventional, a bit complicated, let's say. Um, and that felt familiar. And I was like, OK, well, that like, that's like home. But... Um, <laughs> You know, so I, you know, I, and then I suddenly realised, you know, there's such a need here that actually we, I, you know, it would be, it would make sense to to kind of focus my energy there. And then I kept meeting other people that had had a similar trajectory, and I was like, we might as well, you know, bring our, join forces and advocate and uh, try and reach more people. So that's kind of the point of
1: MITC, I suppose. Sure. Okay. So before we sort of start digging into what's in the book how did you put it together because you're you're the editor but there are numerous contributors to it so how did you go about bringing it all into a sort of coherent form
2: I mean it was it le- I just wasn't in a coherent form for quite a long time I had to learn how to write you know that's quite um, but I mean so what did I do I so the first piece of research interviewed four prominent artists one very prominent um, DJ producer Um, and people in other areas and then from that I kind of condensed these threads and said right we really need to have these kind of physical issues looked at, these kind of psychological issues looked at, these relational issues looked at. So I had a kind of rough idea. Then I spent about a year trying to get um, organisations and charities in the music business to support it, and um, didn't get anywhere. And did a crowdfunder, got some money from Live Nation, and then I could then I could tempt people in with money, which is always more helpful. <laughs> so it's like actually let
1: me let me jump in there and ask you just how clear were you about what it what you wanted it to be at that setting out point?
2: Um, I, yeah, pretty clear. I, I think um, I had a list of chapters I wanted it to include and the sort of depth I wanted to go into but at that point I think we thought it could be about 170 pages is the contract I signed and it's like 640 so publishers have been pretty um, patient let's say
1: <laughs> but, um, Right so you got to the crowdfunder and then at what point did it start sort of taking shape after that?
2: Um, so crowdfunder had a, a couple of days in I, um, I was having a pint in the French house and had an email come through from Michael Rapino saying just senior crowdfunder, what do you need and I thought it was spam so I was sort of like <laughs> gearing up for a chippy response and um and yeah and then it, I sort of figured out this actually is Michael Rapino. and um and yeah so he'd uh, somebody in Live Nation UK had seen it sent it on to him and then that was really quick I just said a figure and basically within a week the money was in the account and they've had no involvement apart from that but then we had to sort of Ask them for another favour, really, because the publisher, the publisher we went with, who are brilliant, Omnibus Press, said, you know, like me, don't really know how many people are going to be interested in this sort of thing. So they were like, "Do you think we can get a minimum order from Live Nation?" And so they agreed to get these three thousand copies, and um, and yeah, and so they, that, they've just purchased them for venue and festival dressing rooms.
1: Yeah, I saw that. that's great. So okay. It's in my in my sort of like general notes that I, I made having gone through it. I mean, you sent this to me ages ago, actually, and I have managed to read the whole thing, but over the course of like four or five months now. As I said, it's, it's some of it is very technical, and it's a combination, I think, of kind of quite academic stuff with stuff which is almost in a kind of self-help kind of a format. And it, it did strike me that what I would have expected a book like this to be written, well, if it was to get published, that it would be written in more of a kind of self-help style. But it actually is, it's, it's pretty meaty in the on the kind of technical side. So tell me about how, like, I mean, how did you have those things in your mind? So like, how much were you thinking about, well, how we need to sell copies of this to, you know, where it needs to be kind of rigorous academically like how are you thinking about that
2: yeah it well it's a hard balance and it's funny because you know we get feedback saying it's digestible which is great and then of course um, there are some chapters which i completely agree that are are more technical the first section of the book i think is so the book's in six sections and the first bit the background we've got one chapter that analyzes all the research we could find like 80 90 research studies and um, and so yeah there, there is that technical component But what I was hoping for the kind of more instructive chapters that are like, here's what to do, is that actually that was going to be digestible. You can have some takeaways of, you know, how to help yourself, how to help other people. But essentially that took ages to get right, (laughs) to be honest. And uh, Peter, Peter Robinson from Pop Justice has been phenomenal throughout. He's written a brilliant dealing with the media chapter, but he kept gently asking me, look you know, remember the audience because I'd be waffling on about, you know, some psychoanalytic concepts and stuff. And he would help kind of ground me and go, yeah, okay, now I need to pare this back a bit and, um and uh, yeah, keep to the brief. But it's a bit, I, I think, um, I hope there's something in there for everyone, but I, I guess I wanted it to seem robust because I wanted... I wanted to show the the scale of the problem which we do have a lot of research that shows the scale of the problem but kind of beyond that go and here's the impact of that psychologically and here's what that does you know to a, a group dynamics and then have you know and here's what to do about it and i think it's a yeah it's a tricky thing to get all of it in one place
1: yeah sure i mean there's that classic thing where <clears throat> excuse me <laughs> the classic uh, notion that for every equation you have in a book, the sales will halve or something. Um, and I don't know if there's a, I don't know if there's an, a, an equivalent of that for, um, you know, studies cited or footnotes or something. But <laughs> I actually think it's it's a pretty good balance that you've drawn. So you said there the scale of the problem. Now there is numerous or myriad problems actually detailed in the book. But so so do you see there as being a single thing that you can pinpoint psychologically that's an issue with this stuff right
2: no I'm, I mean more generally like the scale of um, suffering let's say but I think there's lots of root causes to that and it's really it's about a combination of factors that kind of manifest let's say and it can be there's kind of trends according to job role according to where you are in your career like some of the issues that artists face will be to do with their job role but then at different points of their career they'll face different things you know around sort of job transitions around gaining or maintaining success or fear of losing relevance or all those kind of things but you know so it it's really really varied um yeah so i wouldn't say you could pin it down on one thing necessarily maybe somebody could do
1: that i can't but um yeah yeah but it's it's definitely job specific and there's there's a lot of different uh inputs into the touring ecosystem and i mean for the purposes of the audience that we have on this podcast i think mostly what we're going to be referring to is stuff around the dance touring circuit which is you know dj touring is different to band touring and there are different um, roles involved is fewer people involved and it's, it can be um, i think from a performance side it's, it can be perhaps well i was going to say more lonely but maybe it's it's slightly different i mean certainly the group dynamics chapter i mean there's a there's a, there's a big long chapter about how um lots of references back to to how bands work together and, and the problems with with that stuff before we delve into it though like the broad definition of mental health is something that i wanted to just sort of get into i mean i'm elder millennial young gen x kind of age cohort and the term mental health definitely meant something different when i was growing up and i think certainly from my my direct peers it's taken a little bit of um adjusting to come round to thinking about some of the more broad issues that are talked about in the book, so for example, anxiety is, is a classic one. Like thinking about that under the sort of category of mental health and mental mental illness, I think. So, can you just kind of sketch out what the, the what the broad definition that you Take in the book, and actually, it's, it is a broad definition, which is which is widely accepted now. So, sketch out what that is, and how maybe that's changed, and why some some of us of, of a certain age struggle with it a little bit.
2: Just so I'm clear, in in what way has it changed from your perspective?
1: Well, when I was a kid being mentally ill basically meant you were likely to get sectioned <laughs> and I think something like anxiety like lots and lots of people suffer from that right and it's something which is well it can be dealt with and it's it's something which lots of people live with and you have to live, learn to live with it It's but it doesn't necessarily re- require a clinical intervention right and I think when I was growing up mental health implied that sort of requirement for for, yeah, for a clinical intervention I think that's sort of what I'm getting at here
2: okay so um, you know Broadly speaking, mental health sort of describes uh, two types of well-being, your psychological well-being, that corresponds to your thoughts and and your feelings, and your social well-being, which is about your relationships um, and how you form and maintain them, how you think of them, how you respond to them. Um, Mental illness, I would distinguish from that. So you might have good mental health and poor mental health um so you know when your mental health is really good you are functioning well you're optimistic you know you can you can cope with fluctuations and you're not acting impulsively feeling safe present you're kind of aware of your limits and capacities um and so but poor mental health is of course when um you know when your feelings deepen and your functioning is impacted. So you might feel, um, you might have more worry, you might have a lack of confidence, you might feel pessimistic, you might have anger difficulties, and it might impact how you um, focus and concentrate. You might be more tearful. Um, but mental illness is more about, um, well, it it is a... You know, it's a clinical level of distress that your uh, people are trying to measure there when they're kind of thinking about diagnoses. So, um, there's lots of different symptom profiles for mental illnesses, but it's it's really about kind of having ongoing difficulties, and those difficulties are severe, um, and that then prevents you or causes problems for you in. Maybe your workplace or in relationships or in how you function as a person. So that could include um, more severe or, or thought of as severe symptoms like um, hallucinations, distorted thoughts or upsetting thoughts like paranoia or delusional beliefs. Um, it might have extreme highs or lows in moods um, or mood swings you know very intense feelings that are hard to process and really hard to move through so it's it's there's a kind of greater risk there um and it's also impairing your functioning so we all have kind of periods of good and poor mental health but not everybody gets mentally ill
1: okay yeah that makes complete sense so let's go into okay i've got an enormous list of stuff and it's almost difficult to know where to start the first thing i've got down is what well, relates to kind of workload just overall workload and in trying to kind of draw this out i was thinking about sort of sim- similar sectors which require and well which which um impose really strong workloads on on the staff so i mean and the obvious one i was i thought of was was restaurants and the restaurant industry generally and how there is this kind of culture of crazy long hours and it's kind of like accepted that this you will have to do this and actually the the economics of that industry rely on that and to an extent I think the same is true of well well that's that's a hypothesis maybe you can uh respond to that it struck me that there are certain similarities there anyway and when Thinking about the economics of it, I mean, a big issue with touring in the last certainly coming out of the pandemic has been costs and trying to keep costs down and the pressures that that then exerts on staff, you know, people who work in the industry. So, I mean, how do you, well, how do you see that comparison for a start? And is it realistic for any industry to, you know, to expect this kind of stuff from its staff?
2: Well, one of the I mean I guess one of the reasons that the hours are uh, can be as long as they are, and this comes up a lot in the research is one of the challenges is work overload or work underload, and that can be across the industry is that you're you're pushing towards something that's very fleeting you know as soon as you've got you know you, you push towards a show preparing for a show, perhaps getting a set ready or you know preparing for that or a release. Or a cycle and then there's another one and then there's another one and then there's another one. It's not something that is, um, you know, you're often doing that alone, maybe with some other people, but the artists are exposed to a great deal of of pressure and demands. You you feel like you're always on. There's always someone that wants something from you or certainly on the road anyway, if you're doing press and stuff as well. So it's, um, yeah, I can see some similarities there. Um, But I guess maybe we're talking about job insecurity, perhaps here as well, that there isn't a sense of, you know, when momentum builds, there's a lot of anxiety around keeping it going and not being able to say no. There's a sense that there's a lot of competition. Other people are ready to step into your place. You know, it takes quite a lot of courage um, and confidence to be able to say, actually, do you know what? I'm not going to do that 3 a.m. set because that's going to have a knock on effect for two or three days. And I've got to see my kids in two days. And you, do you see what I mean? So it's kind of, it's how it impacts, it's all encompassing. And that then impacts because it's so psychologically um, at the forefront of your mind. You know, your relationships have to orbit around that as well, which can be, like, cause knock-on effects.
1: Yeah, okay. So thinking about the economics of it, though, because, I mean, the comparison to restaurants here, I think, is is quite stark because filling shifts at a certain Price per hour and you know having a certain amount of staff to make make the headline prices work is analogous I think to having a tour crew and paying them a certain amount and having them need to get through a certain amount of work on their shift i mean there's a there 's a, there's a line in the book which is sort of recommending like twelve hour days maximum for crew members and i, I you know i i a hundred percent hear where this is coming from, but I wonder what the implications are. For, you know, the rest of the, if, if we're thinking about, you know, comparing restaurants, you know, the price of a, of a dish is going to go up, right, if the input's going in and the price of a ticket is going to go up if costs go up for a, for a tour.
2: Yeah, I mean, that section does have a disclaimer saying if there were no financial implications, here's what would be ideal for mental health. So, yeah, I hear you, though. And I think at the moment, post-pandemic in particular, there are, you know, vendor prices have gone up, materials prices have gone up brexit's fucked everything obviously um you know there's a, a additional visa costs there's you know so yeah especially for emerging and mid-level artists there's it's enormously um it's much more difficult to make tours lucrative um and i don't know what the answer is there i mean a, a friend of mine you probably know him actually laurie miller um, uh, was suggested on LinkedIn look, maybe this is where brands step in which I think is a great idea um, or it's w- one of the solutions but there's something about the way that things are being divided at the moment perhaps um, that is meaning that the people that are being pinched the most um, you know are often the artists but there is there is some money being made here so we need to figure out you know not always but we do you know there is at certain levels there's money being made we have to think about sort of where that's going but you, you're right I mean you know my my dream for mental health of a tour is not sustainable in a way because I'd ideally be saying like two days on and one or two days off here and then you know early and late check-ins and, and you know if you were having it really in an optimized way, then you've got to think about everybody else you're on the road with, if it's a band or you're touring with crew. Um, but there are tweaks, and I think there are, you know, what I'm hoping to get across in the book is that some of this is about creating psychological safety, which is about better communication skills and recognizing early warning signs and, you know, working under less intimidation and the way that people speak to each other in the industry, which can um, be very challenging because people are under pressure. So, some, and there's some stuff about that is quite easy to implement. Um, And then there's some other things about routing, about schedules, which, of course, there's a more of a cost implication.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think in many ways, DJ touring is doing it on easy, to be honest, because you have a much greater degree of autonomy about what you want to do. And you have a far fewer number of people relying on you. I mean, touring with a band it just sounds like a nightmare frankly just in terms of the logistics and the um the support that you need and and supporting that support you know
2: yeah i mean look there are some places that do it better than others as well i mean i'm sure you notice the difference when you're playing certain territories right in terms of how you're treated in terms of the you know what's i mean i notice it um even as a speaker i'm like okay well You know, if I'm invited to a European conference, they'll pay me a fee. They'll pay my travel. They'll, you know, hotels. Sometimes they pick me up. If it's in the UK or the US, that's really rarely the case. So there's, you know, we've got some culture. I guess what I'm trying to draw attention there to is cultural differences in how people are are treated. And also, you know, certain sort of Nordic countries, for example, have a minimum wage that artists have to be paid, etc. So there's a kind of political parts there too, but you're right. I mean, but I would say maybe, you know, one of the other differences is, you know, often DJs are booked a year and a half in advance and you'll get a bit closer to it maybe, and then feel slightly differently. And so there's kind of different pressures. And at the time of booking, you might be in one place. And then when it gets a bit closer to it, you know, you might need
1: some adjustments to be made. Yeah, I mean the pressures well the this the whole concept of pressure is is just absolutely key here. So a question I had written down was in your experience and in the views of the people who contribute to the book, like what to what extent are the pressures that people feel to fulfill this kind of these kind of schedules? How much of that comes from like management and labels? I mean, obviously there's a lot of self inflicted pressure that musicians feel. But like, I'm just thinking of like it was the anniversary of Avicii's death the other day, and that got me thinking about that and you know, how much of um, yeah, how, how much of it comes externally, I suppose, from other sort of forces in the industry versus that kind of internal pressure.
2: Yeah, I, I, it's kind of hard to know, isn't it? Because I think um, I think there's a great deal of um, pressure. Everybody's got different objectives. You know, management are under pressure to. To make their commission you know everybody has a different way of looking at it uh, or a different thing a different need that needs to be met but essentially it all comes down to one person getting out there and getting on stage and um so that person will feel all of that like well i have to get say, say you're in a band you know we keep going back to bands but you know and you're on tour with 20 people or 100 people then you've got to get out there because all of those people are relying on that income and you've it's um, it's it's hard to say no, especially if people are saying, you know, you've got to be grateful. This is a great opportunity. That's the way that we silence people and try and make them more compliant is that we tell them they have to be grateful even when conditions are... Dire, um, but it's internally generated too. You know, your ambition and your capacity don't always align. And there's a part of you that goes, Oh, I can do it. I just need to, I just get through it. But, you know, performing takes, it's exhausting as well. You know, you give so much of yourself when you're up there, and that intense connection is wonderful and uplifting, euphoric and transformative, and all those brilliant things that we know it is. But it's also exhausting, and, you know, you're spent at the end of it. And so you either try and keep the high going in particular ways, or you try and mitigate the, crash or you know and I think maybe some teams don't always understand just the toll it takes I mean you know the Avicii documentary which I I get was uh, Tim was very heavily involved in that so it's very much from his perspective but there's a bit at the beginning where his manager's saying you know and he says it in an offhand way because he doesn't believe it to be true, but we're going to, you know, Tim's going to die. We're going to put Tim through so much stuff that he's just going to, you know, and he's kind of really jokingly saying it. But then you see as the documentary continues that there's GPs that are sort of patching him up and getting him back out on the road. Um, And maybe, you know, and, and I don't know the ins and outs of that scenario and whether there was a kind of clinical negligence aspects there but certainly the way it was cut and edited on the documentary you think oh my god (laughs) you know this person is clearly under a phenomenal amount of stress and it's, it's expressed in his body and then later you see he's got this huge entourage around him and there's you know a lot of um Sort of uh, indulgence, let's say, um, happening around him as well, and it's quite hard to step back from that and go, "Do you know, actually, I can't do one more show, or I can't do another two months of shows? It's too much. I have to stop." But I also know, you know, that he he did have support at different times, um, but perhaps I don't know. You know, some people are more susceptible to stress related illnesses. Who knows? I don't know the ins and outs of, of his psychology and what he was going through there. But it certainly seemed that he was running on empty.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And yeah, it just resulted in a tragedy, basically. So, I mean, that, that brings me on to uh, performance anxiety, which is covered in the book. And in your introduction, you mentioned that you suffered from that as a aspiring performer. So tell me about that.
2: Yeah. I mean, where to start? I mean, you know, I've done shit loads of therapy now, like decades of therapy and have got all of these other strategies, acceptance and commitment therapy, which is very good for performance anxiety. and, And I have had hypnosis and stuff and all of that helps. But, you know, for me, the way that it manifests and the way that it tends to manifest for people is a mixture of um, symptoms, kind of bodily symptoms. So for me, it was my my throat would feel like it was closing, so I couldn't sing. Um, I'd be, you know, the usual kind of clammy hands, elevated heart rate, tension in different parts of the body. Um, And at that point, I didn't realise that there are strategies that you can use to sort of um, calm those feelings in your body to just take the edge off enough for it to be bearable. And what else? And, you know, cognitive symptoms, of course. Um, So, you know, underestimating your ability to cope, you know, not, which I think is really important, actually. And I always try and keep that in mind. You know, anxiety is future focused um, and it overestimates the threat and it underestimates your ability to cope. And it's also very linked to perfectionism. So, and that's something that lots of artists struggle with. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we got um, Diana Kenny um, over in Sydney, who's like written lots of books on music performance anxiety to write that chapter. Um, and it was fascinating, you know, talking to people like um, Neil Barnes and Philip Selway and you think, God, you've been, you know, touring for, for donkey's years um, at really high level. You know, how can you still be, you know, how can this still be a problem, but of course it is. It's, you know, there's. Lots of people are susceptible to it, and people can still be very high functioning and and have these doubts or have this um, these moments, especially when they're in a high stress situation. You know that can um, exacerbate it.
1: Yeah, I mean, for some people, like it's almost a part of getting ready. I mean, it's part like that kind of suffering is part of getting the best out of themselves, which is obviously a slightly toxic sort of relationship to have with yourself. But in in your own perspective, did it really affect your performance, or was it just a case of just being having a really bad time before you went on to do something?
2: I mean, I think everybody. I mean, I guess there's differences in severity, right? So there's apprehension and that kind of edginess that you usually feel just before you know you're kind of either raring to go or. But for me, I just stopped performing. I avoided it completely. And that's one of the things that we encourage you not to do when you're feeling really anxious. Anxiety tells you just avoid the threat. And of course, the threat never goes away then. You know, you never learn to deal with it. Learn to sort of be able to trust your own body that actually, even if you feel anxious, even if you feel these particular, particular strategies, A, there's some things you can do to lessen them. And B, you know, you kind of accept that they're there. You don't identify with the thoughts that are saying you know, you're rubbish and they all hate you. You know, you don't sort of, you don't, you, you learn to turn the volume down on that and to, and to perform anyway. And then if you get in the moment, you get in that flow state, then you start to have these other memories and experiences where you can, where you can sort of remind yourself that actually nine times out of 10, or whatever the sort of ratio is you're not panicking when you're on stage you're actually, you're, you are able to to co-create that experience with the other people on stage and the audience
1: So do you feel some regret from not sort of powering through that?
2: No, I don't think that was for me I'm not an I don't think I'm an on stage person, I don't think, you know there's some people that are really good at that and I I just wasn't but I was really into music and I think maybe, I mean maybe I could have been a bit more courageous and you know, but I don't think knowing what I know now about the pressures of um, being a performer, I don't think that was for me really. Actually, I think I'm I think I've got a farmer farmer bit.
1: Yeah, fair enough. I mean <laughs> it's um it definitely has significant downsides to it. okay, so a really interesting thing that I pulled out of uh Geordie Shenton's piece was the was the idea that people who go into music, musicians, are Sort of predisposed to some of these issues, like disproportionately predisposed to some of these issues. I mean, how do you explain that? I guess was my question. Like, is it possible to explain it? Like, what what makes people who are you know susceptible to you know these sorts of issues? What what draws them to something like music? Do you think?
2: Um, well, um, I would say. Uh, some, some musicians have are predisposed to suffering um, because of a combination of factors um, including biological sensitivities so there's a, do you know what there's a good sort of um image of this that is taken from Um, oh god I've forgotten his name William, oh never mind it'll come back there's an American paediatrician who researches um, resilience in children and he came up with a concept to describe some of his research, it's been expanded on since but basically the concept is some kids are like dandelions. Four-fifth of children, he said, would like dandelions. You could essentially pretty much chuck them anywhere, and within reason, um, you know, within laws, um, and they would uh, find a way to thrive. They would be so they have ways of coping with and adapting to stress. But one-fifth of children are more like orchids. They are um, much more uh, sensitive to shifts and changes in the environment. They um, and they had both the best outcomes and the worst outcomes on the tests that this guy did. Boyce, that's his name, WB Boyce, maybe something like that. WT, one of them. Um, and so they had the best outcomes in that they had a much higher creative potential for flourishing, but they also had the worst outcomes. They were much more likely to develop stress related illnesses when exposed to the same amount of stress as the dandelions. So and that sort of shows you that, okay, you might have a, a set of people who are drawn towards creativity and have a natural aptitude or, a, you know, a, are able to develop that through skills building, etc. And maybe it has um, benefits for them in catharsis and release and expression. And they're picking up um, and they're sort of reading the environment and they're translating that for us. And that's the role of artists in society, you know, you might argue. Um, but at the same time, the pressures and stresses of the industry can cause difficulties that um, for them, and that's kind of what you hear in research, like the Gross and, um, Gross and Musgrave research. Um, that's quite popular um, from help musicians in I think it's 2016 2017, something like that. Their research was, you know, time and time again, people were saying the creation of music is uh, therapeutic, it's stress relieving, and it, you know, it's beneficial but the conditions of the industry are stress-inducing or um, are, are traumatic or, or, or difficult in some way. And I think that's kind of, you know, time and again what we seem to see. It's not the music and the making music that's the problem. It's everything that comes around it. Okay. It's when it becomes a career that it's a problem, I think.
1: Oh, right. Well, that's an important distinction. I mean, okay, well, I mean, this this does fascinate me, I have to say, because, I mean, as someone who has done this and who has... Experienced quite a lot of the things that we should talked about in, in the book quite frankly. I do wonder whether, I mean, it's interesting putting it in that paradigm, right? Because I do wonder, like, to what extent the lack of a career. Because I mean, like, like as you say, like making music can be extremely stress relieving. I mean, I actually have to say, on a personal level, it can be pretty stressful as well. You know, if when you're putting pressure on yourself, which I don't think is necessarily linked to having a career, you know, having to make money out of something. Like, putting creative pressure on yourself is something which is not necessarily linked to money at all. The, the reason that it jumped out at me was because the question of whether there was a, a predisposition was in my head, and I was actually looking for this thing to come up in the book, and I was just, it was just kind of like a light bulb moment when it, when it did come up. I mean, do you think that Extend. Oh, here's a question. Does, does that extend to people who work in the industry, or is it just musicians?
2: Well, I would say we actually don't have as much research on this as I'd like. This is my um, particular area of interest. Really, is that um, what you know? A lot of the research focuses on the stresses of the industry, but it doesn't look at um, <clears throat> doesn't look at what are people coming into the industry and how how that's interacting. But there has been some studies, so Bellis and Hughes, I think, is the one that you might be referencing there, which, and also actually Paula Thompson, who's the book's clinical editor, researches, her her research, actually, I I find absolutely fascinating. So she was researching trauma and the creative experience. And so she found that people that had experienced high levels of childhood trauma, which was measured by adverse childhood experiences, and there's 10 of those, and so experiences of extreme stress in the family home. And she found that people that had, who had experienced the most childhood traumas and adverse childhood experiences um, were more on the sort of negative side, they were more shame-based, more anxious, more prone to suffering. I'm trying not to put words in her mouth here, I'm trying to remember. But um, but on the plus side of things, they had much more transformative creative experiences, they were more able to get into those you know, wonderful kind of heightened peak experiences and flow states. So they get a lot more from performance and from creativity, but they're also more prone to perhaps, um, you know, self-criticism and that sort of thing. So um, I think we need, this is one of the many areas that we actually do need more specific research. I'm not sure we need more research on just general levels of depression and anxiety because that's sort of, you know, a lot of research is saying the same thing, but we do need more that goes into the root causes. But to answer your question, I would say anecdotally, I would assume so. Because, you know, when you work in the industry, you do come across quite a lot of unusual people or people that are clearly wrestling with something. And lots of them, like me, were kind of, you know, frustrated, failed artists, maybe. (laughs) Or like, you know, people that have gravitated um, for the cathartic impact of, of music, but are also kind of working through some stuff or holding and carrying some stuff. You certainly see that on tour. You know, you see that a lot in crew. I think it, and once you know what you're looking at, you're like, oh, okay. There's a lot of people who are struggling, and we've got, you know, the research um, by Haim Newman um, and co in the states that was looking at uh, artists, but was also looking at crew, and it was a really large scale study, which is great, really helpful for us. And they found very high rates of suicide, uh, clinical levels of suicidality, clinical levels of depression, anxiety, etc., which does seem to say you know, that, the, you know, that there's something else happening here. It's not just the conditions of the industry, but also we know of, you know, um, it all pressures to promoters. The Skiddle survey that was a few, maybe five years old now, I think was talking about, um, you know, the immense pressure um, that promoters feel. And I know of uh, a few agents that have sadly taken their lives. And there's, I, I do think it is, it tends to attract, unconventional people let's say or or complicated people but they often have areas of um high functioning and then it's the, do you see what i mean so you which
1: means it's not always spotted do you think that creativity in people is um well the word i'm going to use is fetishized but i'm not sure if that's quite a the right word or a useful word do you think in society creativity is seen as something which is it's over-indexed in people do you think in terms of like it's it's desirability um
2: yes i'm trying to think what i what i feel about this i mean yeah I i well i think i think we're all creative so in a way i think that some people would maybe define themselves as not creative and actually would you know it would be great if we could encourage everybody to have creative outlets and expression i certainly think there's a lot of romanticism around what it is to be an artist um and then the myths that come with that that might be about you know the tortured genius or you know that kind of the romantic the romantic suffering part that can come with you know being an artist which i see a lot actually working with people clinically as well as you know, sometimes we have to sort of not dismantle, but, you know, look at what's underneath that and what that's then, um, how that's driving things for someone. But I mean, yeah, I certainly think there can be a lot of lionising around artists. You know, there can be a lot of um, sort of elevating and they're just normal people with a particular, you know, aptitude or skill somewhere. But they also have areas of where they struggle and areas of, the, you know, of immaturity, etc. So it's not helpful to raise some people up and laud them as particularly special, I don't think. I don't think it's helpful for them or
1: us. Right. No, absolutely. Um, and it's a very specific kind of creativity, isn't it, which I think is uh, put on this kind of pedestal. I mean, I think you're absolutely right to say that, I mean, everyone is creative in their own way right and everyone has the capacity but it's this kind of um yeah the the suffering genius which actually um, brings up the this whole thing about the sort of 27 club and the sort of untimely passing of artists which is which is fetishized i think i think that's the right word for using that which is covered in the book so tell me a little bit about that
2: yeah i mean i've been invited on to a few um events that have been the titles been like the 27th club and i try not to say no to stuff but i've had to i've been like do you know what i'm not i can't be part of that we can't continue this
1: <laughs> you know um it's a dreadful way of putting it isn't it it's awful
2: oh god it really is And it's like, you know, we're trying to say, well, look, there's been yet more research on the 27 Club, which doesn't exist. Um, And so we're saying it doesn't exist. But we're also saying, you know, what are we, um, what are we trying to, um, you know, what's the impact of of these myths on people and how do we dismantle them and actually say, look, this is a person that's suffering. And how do we help people identify what suffering looks like, you know, the different ways that it can present? Um, Like, one of the things we're trying to get across in the book is, like, for some um, men, depression surfaces as anger, right? And um, so it's trying to show that things can present in different ways. It's not always a traditional, vulnerability doesn't always look how you expect it to look. But interestingly, actually, I think, I mean, this is kind of a a working thing that I'm thinking about as I'm doing promo. Contacted loads of people that have written about mental health and music industry and mental health and touring and to tell them about look you know we've, we're, we're sort of thinking about how we can change things and there's a lot there's not that much interest really from the wider press as well and you think mm, that's interesting so maybe there is more of an interest in Suffering in some way. Maybe it's more intriguing,
1: or maybe. Oh, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a definite ambulance chaser mentality about the way these things are covered, for sure. I mean, like just the coverage around. I mean, Amy Winehouse is the one that's springing into my head, but I mean, you know, I remember, um, you know, Kurt Cobain's various issues before he eventually committed suicide. And there was was just hysteria in the press around it of, of the kind which is you know you just don't get that coverage around anything anything good do you let's let's be honest
2: no that's i mean i you know i've been trying to work out is this just me just saying why aren't you covering my book (laughs) do you know what i mean or is this actually a legitimate thing i mean i think it might be both but i think i mean yeah i remember i remember all of that and i remember how awful it was to you know to watch amy being hounded i mean we can talk you know there's the tabloid part of that but then what i seem to see anyway is that there's this you know when someone when someone dies there's this sort of tragic mourning this public mourning as if that all of these factors aren't you know contributing Do you know what I mean? Like as if the way people are being described in the press or asked to sort of mine their deepest, darkest feelings in interviews and the the way that we're using people isn't part of it. And I I find that challenging, let's say. It's just my euphemism for everything at the moment.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right, sure, sure. I mean, I I think, um, you know, this this is true for like, I think basically all... Like people in the public eye who encounter these kind of kind of problems, but I think with musicians, we kind of map this like torture genius kind of like aspect onto it too as well, and then you kind of create these legendary figures who seem to be more significant because they 've met a unpleasant end like I mean I think that in itself is high, just highly problematic. But I mean...
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, you might say as well that there's something about, um, and I'm sure there's lots of psychoanalytic writing on this um, that will explain it a lot better than I'm going to attempt to, but I think there's something... That happens in groups, um, in large groups in society, where we elevate someone and then we knock them down. And I think that's often something that happens with artists. I've been thinking a lot about social media recently because um, you know things are coming through in, in uh, sessions around anxieties about you know past things being discovered, about cancel culture, about things like that that's coming through. So I'm thinking a lot about how we respond in groups. But yeah, I definitely think there's something about. Um, There's almost a Schadenfreude, or there's a satisfaction. I think when somebody topples off a pedestal that we put them on. I think the satisfaction in having someone elevated. We can say maybe aspirational in some way, perhaps, or it gives us something to praise. And we see them as one-dimensional, but then when they're knocked off, and they're either you know um, sort of publicly shamed in some way, or they. Perhaps this also applies to when they are then, you know, collapse from the weight of what their, the weight of the burden of that, then I think there's also, there's something that society more broadly gets from that process, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, um... I'm just thinking about Christianity when you said that, but I mean, I don't know if we can go too deep into that. Well, the other thing you mentioned there is cancel culture. What do you think about cancel culture generally? I mean, it seems to me there's kind of a an emerging trend to kind of like wave it away, but the kind of people who I see doing that seems to be the kind of people who are pretty confident that it's never going to happen to them. <laughs> so what do you think about that generally as a phenomenon?
2: I mean, I think it exists. I see it existing. I see, I I think there's a, um, I think there's a a narrowness to how we're perceiving things. And I think that comes from anxiety, really, you know, this labeling of things as good or bad, you could, you you know, the psychoanalytic concepts like splitting, when you divide people into all good or all bad. I've seen it recently. Um, and there's, seems to be a kind of you know somebody a sense of justice behind it which makes people feel like it's justified this person is wronged in some way and therefore um you know the kind of court of twitter will um try and ruin their careers but i think if you're coming what what it does whether or not that is fair or not is one thing but what it creates is an unsafe environment and so If you're already prone to anxiety and you're being encouraged to engage in these online forums frequently or to broadcast, you know, I also work with um, people in other spheres who are in the public eye that have to sort of step into that arena. And I think it feels like, you know, to bring a Christian sort of <laughs> um, analogy in there, you know, the Christian stepping into the arena, you know, it can, it can feel like someone out there is gunning for me. Um, I don't know if that's the right term, actually. I'm not sure if that's for or against, but some, someone out there might, might come for me. I mean, I've thought about it a little bit with the book. I'm like, not in that sort of sense. Like, I don't think my career is in danger or anything, but I've certainly expected a pushback which is normal and to be expected, but, you know, it can be more severe than that. And, um, and I think that's, I mean, I'm not sure how I would have handled that as a vulnerable teenager, you know, with lots of complicated feelings about things. We probably, you know, did some stuff that I'd regret 15 years later, you know, not that it's 15 years later, actually, but do you know what I mean?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. What kind of pushback were you expecting? Did you have anything in mind?
2: Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, this is my psychology stuff, really, I think. But I was, well, I was just expecting it to, to some people to think it's not very good. I think that's just, the, you know, the anxiety of it being... Okay, well,
1: that's a bit, that's a bit different, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, peers maybe not seeing the value in it, or you know, perhaps it be pushed back from different parts of the industry or whatever. But I think that, I mean, that hasn't really happened and may well happen. And it's you know, legitimate if it does, but that's a bit different to um, something the anxiety of feeling like something's going to be revealed to you. I would say as well, some people are more at risk online, you know, women of color in particular. Some of the abuse that the clients I work with. Um, face, you know, the hypersexualization, you know, um, the, the sorts of um, insults they'll get if somebody is angry with them online, you know. And I don't know how you, um, you know, people aren't always prepared for that. They aren't sort of taught how to deal with it.
1: To take, carry on from cancel culture, what, what that um, brought up in my mind was there are certain topics which. <laughs> one has to skirt very closely around. And as um, part of the process of doing this podcast, I've tried to tackle some of them. So one of them is gender equality in the music industry. And I mean, (laughs) I I actually, I did an interview uh, at the weekend where I tried to, Articulate my view on this and did a really bad job of it. And I'm now in abject terror about how this <laughs> interview is going to be uh, received when it comes out. But um, let's talk about the, the general quality stuff, which is covered in the book, though, because an area of general quality that we had discussed on the, on the podcast is the disparity between not performers because I think there's been quite a lot of movement on that side in the past few years I mean maybe not to the extent that there needs to be but there certainly has been movement but it's always struck me that actually on the back end of the industry it, it's even less equal in terms of you know, people working in terms of like the uh, um, participation in the industry so I mean how, do you do you agree with that and how does that change and what do you think um
2: I think that's a very good question. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think likewise, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's fraught, isn't it? You kind of don't want to get it wrong and you don't want to um, upset or misrepresent people. What came Okay, so let me let,
1: let me jump in. Let me just give you my, uh, my, my view on the other side, which I'm waiting to get me in trouble. So the sort of top-down, let's get 50% of performers on festival lineups, that seems to be like the main... Method that has been used, but the goal to me really is to have fifty percent participation across the board. It's like, fifty percent of people making music, participating at all levels, and actually achieving that probably requires quite a bit more than just having you know fifty percent of headliners. Right? It probably requires a lot of work on marketing products to non-males because i mean the music tech world is unbelievably misogynistic in the way <laughs> in the way it markets its products for example so what i've tried to what i've what i've tried to articulate is is the need for much more kind of bottom up measures rather than this kind of like top down let's let's impose 50% of of people from a from a much smaller pool of participants right which is in itself a kind of market distorting action, right? But just going back to the um, participation in other areas of the industry, like, how do you get women and girls interested in doing this kind of work, I guess, is the question.
2: Um, Well, I think lots of um, women and girls are interested in it. And I think there are some groups that are doing great things like 3T, Tall Tech Training, Um, which I've just Googled, so I'm just going to... which uh, I've met a few people from there and they've been... um, So this was um, a a kind of training programme for people, uh, for, for women of colour is my understanding of it, but I think it, it's saying here from underrepresented gender and ethnic groups, that so perhaps it's slightly broader than um, uh, cis women, But um, and they were trained up and then they've been um, kind of placed or they've uh, had the kind of um, hookups with prominent tours and they've all gone on to working in the industry after this kind of intensive training and there's groups like women at live music, etc. Um, I don't know if I have the, uh, I don't know if I'm the best person to talk about um, the training part of it, like how do you make the industry more attractive and how do you recruit and how do you train? But I think one of the difficulties women have when they're in the industry is that a lot of the people at the top, and this is changing. Um, you know, are, are men, are often white men, and so there might be barriers to progression. So on tour, you have, there are, and this is changing, like you do, of course, you hear of women sound engineers, um, and monitor engineers, and women carpenters now, and, and things like that, but there are some roles that are traditionally thought of as women's roles, catering wardrobe, production assistants, um You've got more women tour managers now, but so some and some of the women that I interviewed said, "Look, it is changing, but um, but you may find that people get stuck in a role, and you know, are uh, uh, production assistants at really high levels with huge artists, and they." and they're stuck there, or they're production coordinators, which is a similar, I'm not clear on the difference between the, the terminology, but um, but they may not um, progress to production manager roles, for example. And that's not true of everybody, but so there's a little bit about movement within the industry, and then there's about treatment within the industry. So there's a great project called Safe Talk, which is talking about, um, which is training, um, against sexual harassment and other forms of harassment, I think, on the road. Um, because that's another thing, you know, the cult, because when cultures are male dominant, there can be particular types of language. And like Sean from Drown and Sound interviewed me the other day, and he was talking about, which I haven't thought about actually, I think it's a really good point, like, you know, dressing rooms that have, have been sort of loads of graffiti on the walls and dick pics and stuff. And you think, oh, interesting, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But there's, there can be um, a, a misogyny in the culture and, and, and that was coming through from the men that I interviewed as well which was interesting. So they were saying when you have a greater gender diversity on the role like Opie who's um, production manager for uh, Rolling Stones and Black Sabbath and you know big 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 artist and he said i loved when he said this actually i thought it was just brilliant language i thought i'd misheard him but he said um you know when you you have more you have more gals on the road and it breaks up the pigness i was like what it breaks up the what and he's like you know it breaks up the pigness of the guys like people behave a little bit better and you know it shifts the language and people but not all people are that self-aware to change but you know you can apply that to um, diversity, racial diversity as well. the groups tend to perform better when they're more diverse. We know that from lots of research but um, also the, the culture starts to shift.
1: had sorry let me let me ask you about that perform better under what metrics?
2: Yeah, good question. I mean I haven't done that research personally but I did find some online that, that seemed to say that diverse groups because you've got diversity of thought, you know there's maybe um, that, that there can be uh, better outcomes that way.
1: Um, yeah, yeah I've, I've, I've read stuff like that yeah like for example in in the makeup of company boards, for example you'll have a be- you have better performance managerial performance when there's a diversity of um, yeah, backgrounds basically represented, so yeah that, that would make
2: sense yeah exactly, and of course, then you see you know in that sense you're talking about representation as well if you see yourself up there, you know that it's possible for you to get there, so that can be encouraging and motivating, but I think one of the things that came through, and I wish I just wish he'd let us put his name on this, but I can understand why he didn't. I interviewed a high profile uh, touring person. You know, he's been touring for 30, 40 years. And he said, oh, the gender pay gap's huge. And I was like, how huge? Like what we're talking, he said, oh, you know, 50% wouldn't be unusual. And you think, huh, interesting. And one of the problems with touring um, is that, you know, what people are paid is often hidden. You know it's secretive, and the argument for that might be: well, they've negotiated their rate, and it's based on you know both their negotiation um, sort of skills and their experience. Sorry, are you
1: talk? Sorry, let me, let me let me clarify that. Are you talking about the support staff, not artists? There
2: yes i'm talking yeah i'm talking about production but i mean but i think there's it would be great to have more transparency across the board as well like uh, natasha um hendry who um sang with chicane for years and is now a research psychologist and a singing teacher she was talking a lot about um wage disparities as well and and calling for greater transparency there because there can be a racial component too of of um that comes into what people are being paid so there's kind of treatment you know and uh, you know, I worked in clubs for years and so there was definitely a lot of, um, you know, when things in entertainment more generally, I think, especially when there's often drink and drugs around, then there can be particular behaviours that you come across.
1: Um, uh, I mean, I read an account um, or an article about the Guns N' Roses and Metallica tour of 1992 this weekend. And um, it's funny, right, because it's so... Romantic, that kind of idea of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and that era, sort of maybe from the early, like late sixties, early seventies, until the early nineties, I guess. Or the the era of of big rock, right? And a lot of the kind of rock and roll dynamics that have played out since then are kind of based on those kind of legendary stories, you know, of like Led Zeppelin and whatever. But I mean, <laughs> so, so, some some of it is just just horrendous, right? Absolutely horrendous. Like the, the accounts of, um, you know, girls getting taken advantage of to get backstage passes and all this kind of stuff. And like, it's actually mind-blowing, but it is romanticized still, you know? And I think well, what I was going to say was, how much of that do you think is part of the attraction of going into this kind of, this line of work? You know, because I'm thinking about, you know, going back to what we were saying about, you know, how people who go into this are, have these personality traits or, or disproportionately have these personality traits. And how much of that is an attraction and how much of that plays into that sort of mentality? I I'm, I'm really kind of like speculating here, but like, do you mean how much do you think that's a factor?
2: I don't, I mean, I don't know, but I think there can be something of the spoils of war, you know, that you think, I work really hard. And, and this is a, both a demonstration of how far I've come, like it's a, you know, it's um, part of the payment. And I think there's an association there that for some people, I do <laughs> generalizing wildly here, but, um, you know, that part of what you get when you're successful at what you do is that you're more attractive to people and you get, you get more
1: girls. Oh, I think that's, a, I think that's a huge motivating factor, to be honest. I think, th- I mean, especially when you consider that your average musician, male musician I'm talking about here, is probably a bit of an introvert, didn't get a lot of female attention at school, and is suddenly placed in this position where there is a lot of attention, you know? And it's funny, actually, the, the term spoils of war is, is actually an interesting because I've actually always thought about the music industry as a war, and as you're kind of like m- moving through it as a musician, it is, it's basically combat. Um, which is not the not the best way of, of uh, thinking about it, but
2: no. Lots of people talk about touring in the same way. Actually, they talk about and they use lots of sort of warlike descriptors for their troops. You know, the people that and the, the I can't remember the kind of other language that's used now, but that was really common. That there was the sense of we are going. It's us against the world. We're going through this, you know, really intense period, and you can, you know, strong bonds form that you're going to be under attack at different points. So there's that kind of yeah that's quite that does come up but then there's an inherent um objectification of women within that isn't there when when one of this one of these sort of rewards is sex and sex and porn addiction is a is a big thing on the road people don't talk about that openly actually but some people have done which is why we have that chapter in the book
1: i mean that's that's a uh that's a big part of the satire and spinal tap isn't it I mean the m- misogyny generally and also you know the um, misogyny on the road um, I mean <laughs> just the the, um, the Smell the Glove album cover being the uh, one of the funniest parts in the whole movie but I mean like but, but it's funny because it's, it's satirising something that we all know is true right and it's and I think doing a really really effective job of that and that was 40 years ago you know so
2: but if you're feeling really powerful on stage you are you know you may be there's also a um, and I'm not talking about sort of assault and stuff here although that does happen you know you do have people who are very persistently trying to seduce you sometimes not all the time um but you are suddenly more attractive you are suddenly the funniest person in the room which is something darren i think is it darren hayes from savage garden said on a panel once he said you know he realized that suddenly he'd become viewed as the funniest person in the room when he knew he wasn't that funny which I think is brilliant and I'm like that what what good you know self-awareness but also how bizarre and of course you know you're gonna you're gonna want to still feel powerful and great if sometimes you feel insecure and you know some people work through the adrenaline on stage it feels similar to sort of sexual arousal in a way so they might you know continue that high physically let's say.
1: So basically what we were just saying leads us to the romantic relationships chapter, which I thought was really interesting, by Dr. Sam Takim. This is one which is, uh, I mean, I'm, yeah, I I mentioned elder millennial, younger Gen X cohort, so the wrong side of 40, and I'm still single. And I think part of it is because I spent the age of, you know, 28 till, till now, basically, mostly on the road so tell me about this generally why i mean it's kind of obvious why it's so hard but like what what is the what is the research telling us here
2: um well one um interview that comes to mind with this was katie mellower who was saying you know it's really hard for partners um because you become so preoccupied with the music industry that they can sometimes be secondary and their needs can be secondary because essentially, you know, when the opportunities come, other things get pushed to the side and really, you know, part of what can establish relationships initially is that that person is front and centre for you, you know, that there's, um, a, that they, um, are prioritised. And so it can be challenging to establish relationships, especially if you're like physically unavailable, and then there's the insecurities that come with touring. Some people can feel, you know, people that are left behind can feel a mixture of pride and resentment or insecurity. Some people do have affairs on the road, you know, of course they do. It's an unusual sort of unrealistic, I mean, it's real life, but there's, some, there's an unreal quality to it, it's very heightened. And then, so maintaining relationships as well, and not just romantic ones, but relationships with children as well can be very challenging because, of course, children need to be front and centre you know, at particular points in childhood. And if everything is all about your parent and, and how people see your parent then, and your parents, um, you know, their need to be seen in a particular way, very difficult, but also, you know, relationships have to compete with, with the heightened experiences of being a musician, of being a DJ. You can't really compete with that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, there's different. The relationship can provide a source of of other sort of heightened experiences and feelings of security. And like, you know, I'm doing a lot of interviews with Philip Selway of Radiohead at the moment. He's really pro the book, which is amazing. And he talks a lot about um, how his relationship with his wife has been such a source of safety and security through decades of touring, and um, that that's been really helpful for him. And he's always known that he's loved and wanted when he comes home. And that speaks a little bit of the contrast to that. You know, I spoke to people whose marriages had um, broken down in part because of touring or the responses to touring as well as other factors um, and coming home and just the resentment of the other person being left with the kids for however long and you being essentially partying, which of course is much more complicated than that and touring is very stressful. So this book's hope, hoping to sort of shed light on, you know, is actually very stressful work experience as well but yeah so it can add extra strain but also it's um i wonder whether i mean some people come back from tour and they realize that other people have reached life stages that they haven't you know it's almost as if there's a part of them that's kind of preserved at a particular age people say that about fame actually don't they they say you know you you stay at the age that you became when you that you were when you became famous there's a part of you that doesn't mature along the usual Limes.
1: Yeah, I mean, my own experience of that was, as I said, spending my the whole of my thirties or the end of my twenties and my most of my thirties, heavy, heavy touring, and got to the sort of like classic midlife crisis point, which is to say, sort of late late thirties, and all my friends hit it at the same time, except that. What I wanted from my midlife crisis was like normality, <laughs> basically. I, I had a kind of like really pronounced need to just stop doing this shit and have a normal life. And all of my friends are doing the kind of classic like m- motorbikes and sports cars or whatever. Or actually, actually, in the case of, 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 I think these days, buying an expensive push bike seems to be the uh, the equivalent of, of buying a sports car. But yeah, it was so striking and just obvious as, as to the reasons. But like yeah I mean coming down off it is just mm.
2: it's how you make space for both right like that can there can there be space for the enlivening experiences on stage but can you also you know shift that focus back to to nur- trying to nurture something and and let that kind of relationship grow but I mean you know a friend of mine um I was talking to I'm just trying to think whether we've Put him in the book actually, but I'm not sure. But he would um, tell me, you know, he'd set aside a few weeks off tour and be like, right, that is that is family time, definitely it. He's, a, this, he's not in the same relationship now. I won't mention sure who it is. Um, but he's an artist and he's not in the same relationship now. But he'd set aside a few weeks for uh, off tour, and then suddenly they'd be offered Reading or Leeds or something. And, be like, oh, mm, oh, OK, well, I can just cut it, cut it by a few days. And for him, it seemed really rational because he was like, you know, you don't often get main stage at Reading. This is something I've really got to take or whatever it was. There's always a reason. But of course, the impact of the family was that that was that was the only time we had that, that we had your full attention and we're still competing for that thrill, that exhilaration that you get on stage that we can't offer. And I see this in other industries as well, you know, film, things like that too. But um, so, you know, but then again, you have people. I told somebody yesterday I was on a panel with Ferry Causton, um, I think it was the, at Amsterdam Dance a couple of years ago and we were on a mental health panel and basically he's got really good mental health so it was an it, interesting, uh, interesting person to have on because he was like oh I don't have problems at all I just nap before I go on stage I eat really well I don't take any drugs I don't go to the after party and I go home to my wife and kids which is great but you're like okay he's not, he's not <laughs> sort of susceptible to the same sort of temptations as the rest of us but um But do you know what I mean? People do, I guess what I'm saying is people do have, do find ways of, um, of adjusting and families and relationships also, um, find ways of making space for this is what this person does in the family. Um, but you know, the cycles of separation and reunion are going to add a strain and like Kieran Hebden talks about that in the final chapter, a little bit of the impact of that. And, um, the disruption and the guilt that comes with disrupting, you know, family life.
1: Yeah, I mean, coming back, I think, can be just as problematic. And and you're right, this this is covered in the book as well. And certainly from my own experience, um, if I had it this week, I was um, in the States for pretty hectic, just, just a week. But it was really, really intense, like, you know, shows every night, like, you know, too much drinking, like seeing lots of old friends. And it was a really fun experience, but absolutely shattered when I got home. And just this kind of empty feeling, you know? And actually, like, uh, I don't know if you've read Slash's autobiography. It's actually really, really great. I would highly recommend reading it. But like one of the one of the things that sticks in my mind from that was him saying when he was on the roads, he didn't really have a problem with drugs. And it was when he got home. Was when he started taking heroin because it was just so like empty, you know. You'd have your have this like multi-sensory stimulation every day, every hour of every you know, every minute, of every every day. Something's going on when you're on the road, and i and particularly I'm, I'm you know, in in that uh, environment. Their particular environment must have been like just off off the scale. But I think for anyone doing this kind of thing, it really is a is a challenge which is not I think appreciated at all by. You know, onlookers anyway, if you haven't experienced it, it's not something that you think would be obvious.
2: Definitely. And I think it, it, on a smaller scale, you have the post-show blues, you have the the crash that can feel, you know, you go from this moment of intense connection with the audience um, of whatever size that is, you know, to suddenly being alone in your hotel room. And the, I think there's something, you know, physiological that's happening as your nervous system is trying to rebalance. And I think there's something intense psychologically that's happening when you're in the, those moments of, where it just drops. And then it happens on in a more um, sort of elongated, profound way, post tour because you're, t- you're coming out of this kind of survival mode you've been in your nervous system, your immunity, you know, stress has impacted every system of your body. you probably got post-show, show, post-tour show flu. You know, often people come back with all sorts of like skin conditions and respiratory conditions and stuff. But they, sometimes you hear people um, and they're describing that basically it's almost like their body's still on tour. They're having their peaks of sort of adrenaline at different times of day, you know, sort of just as they would be sort of going on stage as if their body is being kind of primed like a Pavlovian sort of response to, you know, so it takes a lot of adjusting. And then, you know, you've got a big change of status. You've got not only the psychological impact of this kind of intense whirlwind and then suddenly it feeling like the world sort of, you know, in grayscale, like all the technical delights of touring, you know, the sensory overload of it all. And then suddenly you get home and everything may feel, by comparison, dull, you know, and you've lost your raison d'etre, you've lost your status, you know, no one, you don't have your AAA pass for, you know, Tesco's or whatever. You're out of, you know, you're out of practice of doing ordinary things. And, um, and we hear that like Matt Miller. So also, um, of course, died a few years ago of um, an overdose. Um, and just before, it was like within, I remember when he died, and I was, I went on his Twitter and I thought, I just want to see, just in case there was any signs of what was happening beforehand. And there wasn't something overt, but there was a message within 24, it was sort of 24 hours before where he said he just wants to go back out on tour. He just wants to feel that, you know, what it's like to be on stage again. Words to that effect, not quite that. And then he has this drugs binge, and you just think, well, you know, Okay it's my um you know assumption of what led you know the connection between those two things there but it seems as if he was trying to recreate the high that he gets that intense connection that feeling of of belonging of being seen of being loved of that really meaningful moment you get on stage I was trying to recreate that in another way perhaps
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely totally agree leaning on the kind of self-help aspect of the book can you pick out some like easy wins as a looking at touring DJs. If you're a touring DJ, what are some easy wins to make things easier on the road? I mean you just used Ferry Corson as an example, but I mean if we're we're not gonna be uh, quite as right on or quite as lucky mentally as Ferry. Okay.
2: Uh okay, let me think. Um what are some easy wins? Well I think it it may um depend on what you struggle with in particular but I would say some really easy things you can do are is is go out on the road feeling well practiced so you don't and that's going to help reduce performance anxiety like Neil Barnes um he's brilliant um you know he was talking a bit about performance anxiety and said you know there was a few shows that he'd like way back when that he'd got out on stage and realised he didn't really know what he was doing he hadn't really kind of quite prepared and just the overwhelm of that and so you know (laughs) Right. and I I mean, that sounds absolutely terrifying to me. Uh, So, you know, and and if you've toured before, look at what you found draining last time and and think about what restores your energy levels. So, you know, you might think about, let's see, the emotional connection. You might think about good quality sleep. Maximizing sleep is really important. So think about the timing of your flights. Think about early and late check-ins to hotels and requesting that. Thinking about, um, you know, this is a job. It doesn't have to be a celebration every night. You don't have to get completely shit-faced. Maybe if you have a problem with um, alcohol, uh, you know, you can request a dry dressing room. You can request, do the same for your hotel room. You can ask for something that doesn't have a minibar. Think about how you're going to exercise on the road. Think about nutrition. Um, and then there's sort of strategies you can use that can help you um, you know, help you decompress so stuff like visualisation Rob DeBank did a great chapter on um, meditation actually and I was talking to oh, Blaze D'Angelo yesterday about that um, who does uh, meditation retreats at IMS um, you think about um you know what your body's going through too so you might want to book in some physio or some massage at some point um, to help your body uh, rebalance and deal with the stress and the tension of you know repetitive movements as well which you might have on stage um what else uh, mindset stuff's really important so um you know being able to loosen perfectionism a little bit you can still aim for excellence you can still aim for doing something Really well, but try not to have that rigidity around it being perfect. Try and loosen that a little bit. We call, um, you know, instead of it be, we call it healthy striving rather than that perfectionism. And it's really about being more flexible, and reframing criticism as constructive feedback, embracing challenges, persisting despite setbacks, that kind of thing, um, and really. Fostering good connections. So, what I did notice, which I didn't put in the book as much, is um, gender differences as well. There, of course, you know, there are social differences um, in terms of maybe connections. Uh, sort of, women tend to have more frequent um, and emotionally more frequent contact with friends that has emotional content in in those connections as well, and men, particularly of a certain age you know, maybe don't um, have those kind of characteristics (laughs) to their relationships. And that's a source of stress relief. Is this something you relate to? You know, yeah, I know. Well, I mean, you know, this is it. It's kind of, you know, how do we, How do we use the kind of resources that we've got? Looking after your ears as a DJ, mega important. You know, it could be lots of competition of who's louder, not just where you are on the bill, but who's louder. But talk to the promoters as well about the billing. It may be that it suits, you know, maybe you've got a bit of clout and it suits you actually to play at 11 rather than three or four or something. So think about that, Um, you know, think about what's going to work for you and the knock on effect and how you're fueling your body and buy the book. You know, Honey Dijon just posted about it, and if Honey's on board, then it's got to be good.
1: That's that's a seal of approval. (laughs) Okay, well, Tamsin, this has been great. Thanks so much for your time. It's been awesome.
2: Yeah, it's been really interesting. Thank you.
1: Yeah, that was Tamsin Embleton. What an interesting conversation. This is the kind of thing that I really aspired to when I started this podcast and it's great to have such a wide-ranging discussion on some of the issues that, well, as I mentioned in the conversation, some of the issues that I've experienced firsthand and are, I mean, they're sort of talked about in a piecemeal kind of a way, but I think it's kind of work is really really important in you know taking a, a very systematic and detailed approach to solving these kinds of problems or to, at least to addressing them you know in a serious way anyway this is a great episode I'm absolutely knackered so I'm not going to talk for too long we had some amazing parties this weekend it was a great party in Berlin and also in Lyon on Sunday night and I've just got back home after having done that so I'm going to love you and leave you I'll see you in a Ibiza this week if you're around for IMS join us in the discord follow the Spotify playlist and yeah I'll see you back here same time same place next week god I sound tired don't I for the next episodes, for not a diving podcast thank you
2: Let's go there.